You should have outlines from Judges. We're in the 11th chapter. If you would like to open your Bible there, please, to 11, beginning verse 29, 11, 29. And then uh, we will move on, and you'll see in the outline that we are looking at the life of, of Jephthah, and we are um, down to the part where God moves Jephthah vows, if you can see in your outline there. So let's bow for prayer and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for the beauty of this day. It really is a gorgeous day and the coolness is appropriate for the season and we're very thankful. Thank you for the good food. Use it to strengthen and nourish our bodies. Thank you for all who've come. I pray your blessing upon us now as we study your precious word. We have enjoyed the fellowship around the tables today. It has been sweet. And so I pray your blessing upon each person here and their families at this special season of the year. We love you and adore you. We thank you for Jesus, our precious Lord and Savior, whose birthday we celebrate officially one week from today. And I pray, Father, that we will keep as the focus of our attention the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, let me, um, let me begin with verse 29. I know we read this last time, but we ought to get it in front of us again. So verse 29 of chapter 11 in Judges says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. Now, there is no biblical evidence that he is aware of the presence of the Lord upon him at all. No evidence of it at all. In fact, to the contrary, his actions will shock us as we move through this chapter. And it does remind us that God has a plan and a purpose. He is sovereign, and he will use whoever, whomever he chooses to use. He will often use, of course, people who love him, but he will also use for his name's honor and glory those who don't acknowledge him, those who don't love him, those who don't follow him, or those who sin against him. And uh, when it comes to the sin against him, it will be loud and clear today as we continue to study the life of Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, there's something wrong with that statement. What has God already said? The victory is yours. And so Jephthah responds, if you give the Ammonites into my hands. What we're seeing here is Jephthah bargaining with God, negotiating, as it were, with God. This is not going to go well. Uh, This is just the beginning. If you give the Ammonites into my hands... Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering heavenly days. Does he not realize what he just said? Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, Who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down. No, she didn't. 
he brought himself down. You have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gilead, Gileadite. Now, I want to stop there, and if I could do anything to twist this scripture into presenting Jephthah in a positive light, well, I wouldn't do that. I don't twist scripture. But I wish I could make Jephthah look better. But I can't. There is no way to make him look like anything except what he really is. So he tries to bargain or negotiate with God. His vow to God is really a bribe. And at the base of this, and I'll elaborate on this in a minute, but at the very base of all this is Jephthah doesn't know God. And Jephthah doesn't have an accurate picture of God. His picture is distorted. It's distorted because he has really adopted the feelings and the, the mores of the peoples who live around him who are not God lovers and God followers. And so he is going to picture the one true living God just like their gods. Capricious, a lot like humans. Do you, you remember your Greek and Roman mythology? The Roman and Greek gods were were a lot like people. They held grudges. They would lose their tempers. They They were a lot like people. And so Jephthah takes the one true and living God and he views the one true and living God like the gods of the people who live around them. This is grave. Surely he knows who will emerge from his house first. Doesn't he? How could he not know that? Some have said, and you may have heard this, well, he was really talking about an animal. No, he wasn't. Animals don't come out to greet someone on a hero's return, but even if they did, even if the family dog, which they definitely did not have in those days, dogs were scavengers, you didn't have a dog for a family pet, he would have used a different word. The Hebrew word that's used here is a word used for a person, not a a dog or an animal. And they didn't keep animals in their houses at that point, at that point in history anyway. This vow exposes his character. For a victory, for a victory, he is willing to give a loved one. Now, his only child emerges, and what has he done? I mean, this is nothing but tragic. There's no voice from heaven that comes down and stops him. And look at it, look at his daughter. I mean, she's honorable through this, but what pained her was she was going to die childless, unmarried, an unmarried virgin. And that pained her heart. Now, the Bible makes it clear God detests human sacrifice. So why did Jephthah do this? He, he knew, 
I guess, didn't he? That God did not want human sacrifice? Or, or did he? What did he know? Jephthah is desensitized to the violence around him. He lives in a violent world, and he has bought in in his own heart to the violence of the world in which he lived. I'm thinking that he presumed a servant would emerge first from the house. I mean, that's bad enough, isn't it? But his only daughter emerged first. He had become paganized, and he did not understand God's character. He had no concept of God's grace. He does not trust God. That's the bottom line. He didn't trust God, because if he trusted God, he would have known a vow wasn't necessary. He does not trust God, and he seems to believe that God will strike him down if he doesn't keep his vow. Um, I'll let you in a little secret, Jephthah. Most people would have preferred that God strike you down rather than give the life of your daughter, okay? He sees God like pagan gods, like those that are portrayed as having human emotions. He had the Word of God... First five books, Pentateuch. But he knew nothing of God's grace. His concept of God was an exacting God of legalism. And if I don't keep my word, he'll strike me down. This is a terrible story. You know, I feel, I, I, I thought, you know, what is wrong with me? Here I am saying this is a terrible story. And so I thought I'll go to all the commentaries and see what they say. You know what they said? This is a terrible story. <laughs> All of them. Every one of them. This is a terrible story. Maybe the worst in Judges. Now that's not, don't get me wrong, that's not a reflection upon God or the Word of God. That's just God is relating to us in this text a terrible story. You cannot offer the fruit of your body for the sin of your soul. And that's what Jephthah was doing. If, if you and I are reminded of anything here, because we would, uh, I mean, we are horrified by this, but if we are reminded of anything, it is be careful with your words. We at least learn that. Well, it, it happens. I, I can only imagine the horror of all of this, and I'm glad that we don't get much more detail. I mean, I know all I, all I want to know or need to know about this story. So mercifully, God takes us on to the next event in Jephthah's life, and that is chapter 12, Jephthah and Ephraim. So let's look at the first seven verses of chapter 12. The Ephraimite forces were called out, and they crossed over to Zaphon. They said to Jephthah, why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head. <laughs> you know, um, wow. We wanted to go to war with you and you didn't invite us to come. We're insulted. Now, you and I might say, man, I'm glad you won without me. I didn't really want to be there. But the Ephraimites took it as an insult because they are one of the major Tribes from the heartland of Israel. 
And so they are offended that Jephthah did not come and ask for their assistance in the battle. So Jephthah answers, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites, and although I called you, he says, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now, why have you come up to fight me today? Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, You Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim, and whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he replied, No, they said, All right, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. So you, you see the Ephraimites had a little speech difficulty that wouldn't allow them to say Shibboleth. They would say Sibboleth. And that identified who they were. Now, I, like you, find some some form of amusement at that, but I do want you to think about the heart of the matter. The ruthlessness of Jephthah and the Gileadites, that they would be guarding the fords of the river, and when someone could not say the word correctly, they would kill them right on the spot. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. My soul is a horrible slaughter. Jephthah led Israel six years. Then Jephthah, the Gileadite, died and was buried in a town in Gilead. I wonder if anybody showed up for the funeral. I wouldn't have. Not for him. I might have shown up for the funeral of his daughter, but I wouldn't have shown up for his funeral. Now, here, here is, there's a new crisis for Jephthah. He's from Gilead, which is east of the Jordan River, what we would we know today as the nation of, of Jordan. The Ephraimites are, are from the heartland of Israel, right smack dab in the middle of, of Israel. They're one of the leading tribes of the northern part of the nation. They are offended that Jephthah did not acknowledge their importance by involving them in the fight against Ammon. They are belligerent and they are threatening. And Jephthah is not in a mood to deal with this. We can obviously see that. He's a man of many moods and right now he's not in a mood to deal with the Ephraimites. He's angry and he decides to settle this once and for all, he's probably thinking, we're going to be fighting them forever, so I'm going to take care of it and settle it now. He says he called for their help. They say, no, you didn't. Nevertheless, they go to battle, and Gilead wins decisively. Ephraim deserved what they got in Jephthah's thinking. 
But Jephthah is seen to be very violent, very personal. I mean, this is personal. Jephthah shows himself to be a strong leader, no question about that. There have been many despots who could be called strong leaders. But in the battle against Ammon, Jephthah made a case for the high moral ground. You were here last week, remember? He said, this is not your land, this is our land. How come you didn't say 50 years ago this is your land, you're just coming up and showing up now and saying this is your land? No, it isn't. Remember, he made the case for a high moral ground in the argument with Ammon. And he called to God for help. And the victory was God-given. But here against Ephraim, there's no appeal to God at all. There's just sheer force, lots of hostility between Ephraim and Gilead. And Gilead, Ephraim is routed. And vindictively, Jephthah hunts them down like dogs. And he cuts off the passes, the fords of the Jordan River. And when people show up, they he asks for a password say Shibboleth, and when they say Sibboleth, they're revealed for being Ephraimites, and he slaughters them, 42,000. 42,000. That's what, two and a half times the population of the city, within the city limits of Belton? Wow. Jephthah, there's something I, I want you to notice here. Jephthah, by his actions, shows he's not really all that interested in leading the nation of Israel. He's interested in leading the tribe of Gilead, but not really the nation of Israel. And that is exposed in his actions here. So, complicated individual. What do we learn from the life and the actions of Jephthah? He's a capable man, and by that I mean he's capable with words. We see him in negotiations. We see him in taking the high moral ground in his battle with Ammon. He's, he's capable. He's definitely capable in battle. Remember, he, uh, he led a, va- a band of vagabonds who would hire out to carry out acts of violence. That's what he did. And so he's now become the leader of his people He's strong, he's decisive, appears to have a strong personality. Maybe some would say, what a natural leader of men, perhaps. At best, at best, he can exercise a form of faith. But he has a background, a personal history, which shows us he's very limited and he does things that we cannot condone by any stretch of the imagination. He appears as we move along toward the end of his life to be insecure and self-centered for certain. He never fully engages with anyone's interests except his own. This is the hardness in the man and the reason why we could never call Jephthah truly great. And so in this insecurity, this self-doubt, this failure to trust God leads him to make an awful vow to God and then ends up keeping this ill-made vow 
when all he had to do was say, God, I, I didn't, God, I didn't intend this. I, I thought it was going to be, I thought it was going to be a servant. Like, like our God's going to say, oh, okay. But he didn't have to kill his daughter, but he pictured God sort of like himself. Mean, vindictive, bloodthirsty, legalistic. I made a vow, if I don't keep it, he's going to kill me, so instead of killing me, I'll kill my daughter. That's that's the kind of man he was. Jephthah the Gileadite, leader of the Gileadite people, but never really a judge of Israel. Leadership is a big responsibility anywhere at any level. You know that. In leadership, there is usually great potential for good or for evil. Jephthah seems to be good with words. He exposed himself as a negotiator of some success for a little while. But he went way beyond that when he decided to negotiate with God instead of taking God at his word. Give me a victory And if you do, then I will do this. I will sacrifice the first person that comes out of the door of my house. Wow. So we remember we receive the blessings of God, not because of our own merit, but by his grace. I wish Jephthah had remembered that. Enough of him. Let's move on to some... Minor judges, and I put them in quotes because I, I don't really have the right to call them minor, except that there's just, we don't know much about them. But they are listed in scripture, so let's look at verse 8. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem led Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave his daughters away, <laughs> yep, he gave his daughters away in marriage to those outside his clan, and for his son, Sons, he brought in 30 young women as wives from outside his clan. Ibzan led Israel seven years, and then Ibzan died and was buried in Bethlehem. Let's go on and read all of them and then talk about it. After him, Elon, the Zebulonite, led Israel ten years. Then Elon died and was buried in Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, son of Hillel from Pirathon, led Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. He led Israel eight years. Then Abdon, son of Hillel, died and was buried at Pirathon and Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. What? In the hill country of the Amalekites. What's he doing there? Okay. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I just know that wouldn't be where I'd want to be buried. There's a reason he was buried there. Okay, let's talk about these three guys here just a moment. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here because I think they are minor in, in nature. We don't have much to go on with Ibzan. By the way, it says he's born in Bethlehem, but that is not the same as the birthplace of Jesus. This is another Bethlehem. As it says in Joshua 19.15, it is Bethlehem and Zebulun. We don't know exactly where it was. We haven't, it hasn't been discovered in archaeology, but we know it wasn't Bethlehem of Judea. It is another Bethlehem. Now, Ibzan, there's no claim made that he saved Israel. And apparently there was no need for that at this moment because we see nothing of any oppression. This appears to be peacetime. And Ibzan judged seven years. 
His success seems to be in arranging marriages. He's a polygamist. He is a polygamist, and that distresses us. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters, so he had multiple wives, and he arranged marriages. But the interesting thing about the marriage arrangement is he's not arranging marriages with Canaanites, thank God, but he's arranging marriage with the other tribes of Israel. And there's a reason for that. Can you guess what it is? He has some success in peace. And he is ensuring that success by making sure that his children are married among the other tribes because that's family. And, you know, we're not going to fight each other because we're family. It's like the Davises and the Smiths and the Joneses. So I've got multiple kids and and so they get married to all the Smiths and the Joneses, and we're all inter, you know, we're all married, and we're, so the, the family reunion's big, and Thanksgiving's wonderful, and Christmas everybody gets together, and there's peace. At least that's the intent. Now, that stands in contrast to what Jephthah did, and that maybe is the most positive thing I can say about Ibzan. It stands in contrast to the foolish, foolish actions of Jephthah. Then we come to Elon, and we have very little knowledge of him except he's a Zebulonite. And the first mention of Zebulon in the book of Judges is in the first chapter in the 30th verse, and they are painted very negatively. But as time goes on between then and chapter 12, where we are now, Zebulon answered the call of God to fight with Barak, to fight Sisera, in chapter 4 and chapter 5, they're part of the victory song, and in chapter 6, they're with Gideon. So the tribe of Zebulun is, is much more positive now than when we started the book of Judges in, in the first chapter. So now they are viewed as men of honor. And they, they're the people who responded when duty calls. And Elon is their leader. So he looks honorable. And that's all we know. Now, Abdon... Again, a polygamist, 40 sons, 30 grandsons, and they ride donkeys. Now, just a little distinction there. Horses are ridden for war. Donkeys are for work or for ceremony. So notice that the 40 sons and the 30 grandsons of Abdon ride around on donkeys. Now, I don't know how important this is for the big scope of the book of Judges, but quite frankly, I think the intent here is to paint a picture of a family that's pretty ostentatious. They they ride around on donkeys, and people say, boy, they think they're somebody, don't they? (laughs) That's exactly what Abdon intended. Absolutely. Riding a donkey was symbolic for... I'm somebody. That's hard for us to imagine. Anybody here ever ridden a donkey? Not a whole lot of fun. I don't. But it gave a message in that day. We are important, and you out there walking around, just look how important we are. But Abdon leaves Israel spiritually weak, which is what we're going to see because who comes next? Samson. Samson. 
Now, Abdon's buried in the land of the Amalekites. I really don't know what that means except why in the world is he buried in the land of the Amalekites? I don't know, but I, I, I don't think it's a positive thing. But how would I know? So, okay, let's, let's talk about, let me talk about Samson for just a second, and then we got to go. So you have that to look forward to two weeks from today, no, one, two, three weeks from today. We're going to come back and talk about Samson. Here's a question. Samson, saint, sinner, or both? Yep, I think I heard most of you say both. Samson is dramatic. I mean, who doesn't love the story of Samson? Kids really love the story of Samson, and we love the story of Samson. Artists love the story of Samson. Uh, Rubens painted his famous picture of Samson and Delilah. Bonet has the picture of Sam, had drew the, drew the a picture of Samson killing a lion. The lion is in scripture. Handel. You might know what Handel did with Samson. Samson's oratorio written in the same year as the year which Handel wrote the Messiah. He was on a roll. And I will tell you, in my opinion, that Handel's Messiah is inspired of God. Now, I can say that because it's, it's all Scripture. But in that same year that he wrote the Messiah, he wrote Samson's Oratorio. John Milton wrote his epic poem about, about Samson. Samson Agonistes? Yes. All inspired by the biblical text. Milton wrote Samson Agonistes shortly after he wrote Paradise Lost. So Samson figures big in the artistic world, in the literary world, in the biblical world, and we're going to see all about Samson when we come back three weeks from today. Okay? You can read ahead. And then if I'm not feeling good... When it's time to teach, you come on up and take it. That'll be, be good. But what I do want you to know, when we talk about Handel, we talk about Milton, we talk about Bonet, understand this, all of them took Samson very seriously. That's why they wrote about him. That's why they portrayed him in art. That's why they, they wrote salt music about him. They take him very seriously. And we're going to do the same thing because there's more about Samson in the book of Judges than any of the other judges. He's significant. All right. I'll see you in this setting next year. How about that? Father, thank you. There's so much in Scripture for us to learn. Thank you for instructing our hearts. We look forward to coming back and learning about Samson. So I pray that between now and then we'll have a wonderful Christmas celebration with family and friends, that we will remember the reason for the season, that we will rejoice in the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Keep us safe in the palm of your hand. Keep us healthy. And we look forward to being back together in this setting in just a few weeks. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. Merry Christmas to all of you.